Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Life with GDPR, a podcast where I work in conjunction with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, and a well-known data privacy, data protection expert. However, first, as you know, the Compliance Podcast Network is always expanding, and I'm looking for new podcasts. Have you wanted to do a podcast but didn't know how? Take a listen to our sponsor this week, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Life with GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, for another episode of Life with GDPR. In this episode, we're going to take a look at some of the most popular areas of activity that we have seen over the past year as... uh, by the time you listen to this podcast, it will have been uh, one year, over one year since the implementation of GDPR. So, Jonathan, with that incredibly long-winded and winding introduction, uh, first of all, welcome and thanks for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks very much, Tom. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Jonathan, I wanted to uh, ask you if we could maybe highlight some of the top developments that not just you, but really the entire quarterly team has uh, seen over the past year, because one of the things that uh, Quartery does, in addition to you being on this podcast, you guys have quite a social media outreach for your clients, customers, and really any others on the website. We're going to link to some of those resources, but you've been very, and the firm has been very active about discussing sort of where we are, uh, what's happened, and where we may be going. So I guess uh, if I could uh, start with uh, if you could just name some of the popular areas of activity, and then we could take each one individually and drill down a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. Yeah, we've been trying to, I mean, obviously, anybody can look at what's happening with GDPR, and we've done a podcast already looking at the numbers. But what we're more interested in is trying to draw trends. And to do that, we've had a look at, uh, at quite a lot of the cases, what different regulators are up to. And we've also, through GDPR Navigator, tried to get information from clients of ours as to what they're seeing across their desk, and then also looking at our current portfolio. What are we dealing with? What sort of work are we doing? And we ended up thinking that that, that really there are four main trends, I think, to GDPR activity in the first year, and they're security, the six principles. I'll explain what that is in a minute data subject rights, and data protection impact assessments. So um, we could take each one in turn, shall we, Tom? Yeah, let's start with uh, security. Yeah, so security is probably one of the most talked about aspects of GDPR. I think when we talked about GDPR pre-implementation, we were saying that maybe 70% of the cases would be around security. That's probably about correct. It's hard to get uh, full metrics on some of the activity so far. Austria, for example, has been quite assiduous in bringing proceedings, and we know that some of them are security-related, but we don't really know how many. 
Uh, we haven't seen many large cases on large data breaches, but that's probably because a large data breach takes quite a long time to investigate. A regulator really is going to have to say that the company did not take adequate technical and organizational measures, what we call TOMS, and there's often a dispute uh, as to, you know, the, the organization says we did all we could, particularly in an area like hacking, and then it's up to the regulator effectively to say whether they accept that as true or not. The added complication, of course, is that many of the large data breaches, Facebook being one, is uh, an investigation that will involve multiple regulators un un under the uh, IMI scheme. So one regulator will be appointed as the lead in the, in the case of Facebook Island, but the other regulators will want to input in and be connected with that investigation. So as a result, the big investigation is going to take longer. They're more likely to be contested as well because the fines will be higher and there'll be this technical argument as to whether the measures taken, those TOMs, were adequate or not. But having said that, we have seen quite a lot of activity at a lower level in uh, security breach cases. In the Netherlands, for example, the AP, the Dutch uh, Information uh, uh, Authority, has taken action against 298 organizations who reported a data breach. And probably the most widely reported case in this area was from Portugal. It was one of the first uh, GDPR cases. It was a fine of 400,000 euros for uh, Centro Hospitalar Barreiro Montiga. And they'd breached the security provisions of GDPR along with a couple of others. And one of the disturbing headlines there was that the uh, Dead Protection Authority's findings included the fact that there were 985 users of the hospital's IT system recorded as doctor, so they had the, the profile on the IT system as a doctor, but they only employed 296 doctors. So they managed to have, you know, three times that number have access than actually physically existed. So that was, I guess, a more obvious case and easier to bring a quick prosecution. But we are promised some significant fines for security breaches uh, just around the corner. Um, so uh, security, definitely an area of activity and definitely, as we said in our last podcast on the metrics, an area where there's lots of reporting and lots of investigations currently. So next up, Jonathan, um, what about the cases involving the six principles of GDPR? What have you and the quarter team seen around that issue? Yeah, so the six principles are really these guidelines that tell you how you have to hold data. Um, security is also relevant to the six principles as well, because that's the, the sixth principle of the six but the one we're seeing the most activity around, I think, is around transparency. So there's an obligation in GDPR to handle data lawfully, fairly and transparently. And just as security was an obligation in the old legislation, so transparency was as well. And we've seen quite a lot of cases concentrating on the transparency principle, some of which we've 
chatted about before on these podcasts, the uh, French uh, DPA's findings against Google were the most significant. You'll recall a fine of 50 million euros, which is being appealed, but at the moment is the highest fine. And we've talked about that on our podcasts before. Um, We've also talked about the recent HMRC stop processing notice from the UK investigate uh, UK Information Commissioner, which in some respects is more damaging than a fine because the HMRC were ordered to destroy five million records that they had obtained without being transparent about what was being done with that data. And then we've also seen a lower fine in the in the bounty case, which again we've talked about a UK case. Um, A lot of the uh, cases around transparency uh, seem to be uh, involve a closed circuit TV. So organizations that are running surveillance cameras, CCTV cameras, whether capturing people on the street or whether capturing uh, employees and not being transparent about whether they're using CCTV at all how long they're keeping the images for, what they're doing with the images, et cetera, et cetera. So we know that some of the Austrian cases, for example, involve that. So uh, transparency, I think, is the cornerstone of GDPR in many respects. You have to be clear what you're doing uh, with data. And there was all this debate about whether consent was needed or whether uh, legitimate interests would be good enough. You know, how do you legitimize the handling of data? And in some respects, that's a, almost an academic debate because you can't rely on either unless you're open and upfront with people about what you're doing with their data. So that's why the six principles are very important. And transparency is probably the one that is being used the most. Jonathan, do you see your clients or, you know, customers, potential clients, or, or even other lawyers really moving towards trying to implement these six principles, either on a remedial basis or incorporate them directly into their data privacy, data protection policy? I, I think you do. I mean, I was talking this week at um, Relativity Fest, so people are, are, are involved in uh, using a software to do internal investigations or e-discovery. And that was clearly a big topic of discussion when we're involved sometimes in advising other law firms on e-discovery exercises. You know, we're repeating, repeating and repeat again the fact that the six principles are highly relevant. Um, we, you know, normally have a simplified copy of the six principles that we're advising people to stick near their workstation because they're, they're good, sensible guidelines and they also help you with other aspects of GDPR compliance. You know, if you haven't got more data than you need, then responding to a data subject request is easier. If you haven't got more data than you need, then you're less likely to have big issues with a security breach. So sometimes if you use the six principles as the foundations of what you do with data, you can minimize other aspects of GDPR as well. 
Uh, Jonathan, the issue of data subject rights uh, is one that has not gained a lot of traction with U.S. corporations. However, this seems to me to be one of the key elements of GDPR. How have uh, what have you and your team seen around data subject rights, data subject uh, requests, and how companies are responding to these? Yeah, I think in 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 terms of our practice, this is possibly the area of greatest pain at the moment, and. I think it's interesting, certainly when GDPR came in, security breach was the thing we were probably dealing with most, and they tend, you know, we're still dealing with security breach cases, they tend to be uh, impactful and they require a lot of people to get together and make a concerted effort over a short period of time because of the 72 hours reporting obligation. But in some respects now, data subjects request, uh, data subject right requests have taken over as the biggest area of pain. Now, the biggest volume we're seeing is still subject access requests. So that's, you know, a request to an organization, please tell me the data you have on me. The trickiest ones we are handling are from recently departed or departing employees who are trying to leave with cash um, we don't have a, an employment at will situation in Europe like you do in the US. So people can claim for unfair dismissal or unfair dismissal. There are various other claims if they say they've been discriminated against. And people are trying to use subject access requests almost as pre-action discovery to see if they can stack up cases like that. If they can, they can maybe take the documentation along to a lawyer and try and run a case on a contingency fee basis because they've got evidence that they've got something to fight. And we're also seeing aggrieved consumers and ex-employees serving subject access requests because they know it will cause the entity pain. They know that it will take somewhere between probably 150 and 300 hours to compile a report the uh, response to the request, to redact the relevant data, to make sure it's done uh, 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 appropriately. And they know that that's a way of getting people to, you know, feel the hurt that they're feeling. So you're almost seeing, you know, revenge uh, attacks, the use of subject access requests as revenge attacks. We are seeing some right to be forgotten requests. Uh, they're by far lower in volume. And I'd say SARs have probably picked up in volume, I think, and in complexity, probably in my mind, only in the last three months or so. There have been a number of advertising campaigns in the UK, in Ireland. You know, there's been an advertising campaign on the side of buses. And I think also what we call the Jungle Telegraph has been working a bit as well in that I think we've had, you know, employee A leaves uh, causes pain to the employer. Employee B then leaves. They say, oh, you can cause pain to them uh, like I did. And so this word of mouth is meaning that people are using SARs more. We've also seen it used as a form of protest. In the Irish abortion debate, for example, one side tried to tie the other's resources up by uh, lodging a lot of SARs just to cause them pain and make them transfer resources to dealing with requests rather than 
the more public uh, uh, sided face of what this group was trying to do. Jonathan, um, in terms of the next category of DPIAs, are you seeing companies really utilizing this tool as a key component of their compliance programs? So, for instance, in other areas of compliance, a risk assessment, uh, if not forming the backbone of your compliance program, certainly informs your compliance program. Do you see companies fulfilling this statutory requirement and or taking the information and really utilizing it to help build out uh, their complete program? I think the good are embracing DPIAs and also their their little cousin uh, LIAs, legitimate interest assessments. So basically, if you're doing something new with data, then you ought to do a data protection impact assessment. Do it as early as you can. Like you say, with risk assessments in other areas of compliance, it might help you decide whether to do the thing or not do the thing. And if you're going to do the thing, what the risks are likely to be and what the mitigations are that you need in place. And oftentimes, if you do the DPIA early enough, the remediation doesn't cost you anything. So let's say, for example, I'm going to outsource my whistleblower helpline. I do a DPIA very early on. It identifies for me the remedial steps I'll need to take. And I just drop those remedial steps into my invitation to tender or my uh, scoping document that I send out to potential third-party headline providers. And I say, by the way, my assessment is that to mitigate the potential privacy side effects of this new helpline, we'll need to do the following five things. Any successful vendor who bids for this contract is going to need to do this as part of the contract price. So if we get ahead of it and do proper planning, we can get good compliance for little or no money. If we try and do it after the event and retrofit compliance, then that's likely to be challenging, more time-consuming, more expensive. And, and additionally, of course, almost always when something happens, whether it's a data breach, whether it's a complaint from a former employee, the regulator is asking to see your data protection impact assessment. So even if it's not mandatory, in many cases, our clients or the good clients are still, are still doing that because they know that once you get good at a DPIA, it may only take you a couple of hours' work, and, uh, and the consequences of that are significant if you don't do it. Uh, Jonathan, in, uh, maybe uh, with a few concluding remarks, you might be able to tie these together or some of your other observations uh, for this past year of GDPR, but I wanted to ask a couple of other questions um, number one, uh, you've been in data privacy, data protection for quite some time as a professional in your career as a lawyer in England, uh, solicitor, I should probably say more accurately. Um, and uh, I know one of the things that uh, concerned you prior to the implementation of the act was uh, bad, bad advice and or bad legal advice that might be floating around out there. Do you see a greater professionalization of uh, within the legal profession, and so that the the legal information can be delivered to 
companies, uh, large and small, about what their obligations are, and then two, to help them actually implement those legal obligations in terms of an overall uh, GDPR compliance program? Uh, I'd like to say that um, that the situation had improved with regard to issues like GDPR fake news, but I'm not sure it has. Um, I am obviously incredibly old. Uh, this year, I think it will be the th- 30 years since I, I advised on my first data protection case. And my first one was still one of the most difficult ones I've ever had to deal with. Um, and uh, and it's still, there are still too many enthusiastic amateurs who have, you know, 30 weeks experience rather than 30 years or less so, you know, to give you my favorite of the moment, uh, we had a multinational corporation where they had a compromise of an HR database the people running the HR database were based in the US. The people who discovered the issue were in the EU. They knew they had an obligation to tell regulators. They couldn't get any information of colleagues in the US. Colleagues in the US, uh, it happened to be Thanksgiving weekend, when colleagues in the US replied, the 72 hours had passed Colleagues in the EU are pretty mad at them and say, why didn't you respond to emails, texts, phone calls? They said, oh, we we checked through with our local council over here in the US who said there was a specific exemption that GDPR didn't apply, the time limits didn't apply over Thanksgiving weekend. Now, that's just beyond crazy. There's no way on this earth that the European Commission, the European authorities would ever exclude exclude Thanksgiving for 72 hours when, you know, Christmas, New Year, Easter, uh, holidays that are celebrated in the EU don't get that protection. Why why would a holiday that isn't even celebrated in the EU EU get special protection? So some of the advice is, is beyond crazy. We're starting to see a number of people ask us uh, about litigating uh, with their lawyers who've given them bad advice in the past. Some of them are pretty horrible. You know, in one case, a database of, I think, 27,000 individuals that it had taken the business years to build up was destroyed on the advice of, of lawyers. And, and, and some of this advice is just, is just plain negligent. So, I'm sorry if that was a bit ranty, Tom, but I'm afraid I I have seen an absolute mixed quality of advice. And of course, people with very few qualifications, uh, not legal qualifications, feeling somehow qualified uh, to give advice and practicing, you know, without insurance and without knowledge. It's uh, it, it is a sad state of affairs. Well, uh, so far, the State Bar of Texas has not said that because I can spell GDPR, uh, that's enough. So, um, (laughs) you know, perhaps uh, the professionalization will certainly uh, move forward. Uh, If I could turn to uh, the the companies, the clients, the customers, 
do you see an increase, not only awareness, but actually moving to fulfill the requirements of the law uh, as well uh, in terms of just, you know, putting together compliance programs and doing the right thing going forward? Uh, yeah, I think it's mixed. I think a lot of people uh, have slowed their projects down a little in the last year. They had a frantic period at the beginning of 2018. They took a break in June 2019 in some of the sometimes because the project team was under stress. And some of them have picked those projects up again too slowly. What tends to happen or what we tend to see all too frequently is, is they've you know worked pretty hard up until May 2018. They were, let's say, 70% complete in their GDPR project. They then decided to have a small break. Business got in the way and they didn't return to their work plan. They then have a security breach which oftentimes would have been fixed had they done the remaining 30% of the work. And then they have to work like crazy again to make sure that they've completed the rest of the plan because they've had to report the breach to the regulator and they want to tell them that you know training is now complete or the DPIAs are now in place or their Article 30 record is now done or whatever bit it is that they missed last time around. So I think it's a useful opportunity one year in for organizations to just look, you know, to dig out their original GDPR plan, check that everything's working, see the bits they've still got to pick up, and then maybe refocus. I would say this, wouldn't I? Maybe speak to somebody who knows what they're talking about and says, you know, this is a priority, this isn't a priority. Make 2018 the year that you get these three things done and you'll improve your compliance going forward. In terms of the uh, regulatory response, Jonathan, do you see regulators uh, moving slowly, cautiously? Uh, do you see them moving aggressively, or, or is it perhaps uh, not so much a mixed bag, but really uh, uh, almost a country-by-country uh, country or regulator-by-regulator regulator analysis? Uh, I think it's more of the latter. I think it's clear that some regulators – care more about some stuff than others. And again, that was that was relatively predictable because that's the situation under the old regime as well. You know, we know that, I don't know, the UK regulator has got a particular thing about um, data influencing elections. So a lot of her activity is in that area. We know that many of the regulators in former Soviet states are worried about surveillance cameras, so a lot of their activities in that area. We know that many regulators have had issues around biometrics, so it's not a surprise that a lot of activities in that area. We know that all of them care about health data, data that could lead to identity theft. So, again, the areas of activity are changing. Um, some uh, authorities, like the Netherlands, for example, have been doing industry campaigns. So, you know, we're looking at health data now. We're looking at this now. And some of them have been doing pre-scoping work, like uh, Bavaria has, for example, to look at those areas where it thinks its regulatory activity would get most bang for buck. So I think the, uh, I think the sort of the landscape is... Uh, 
is broad and is changing. There are also criticisms of some authorities saying that they're moving too slowly. Uh, Ireland, for example, would be one. In some respects, the criticisms are unfair because a lot of the complaints that Ireland have got are pretty huge into organizations like Facebook and Google. And, uh, and also some of these involved and complicated complaints are made by individuals, uh, Max Schrems being one, who uh, will give a, a, a well-reasoned uh, complaint, whether it's correct or not, will give you know, a, a, an involved complaint that is going to take a regulator some time to work through rather than a simple, you know, I think this guy's got a picture of me and he won't release it. But, um, but I think that is a tension that we're going to see in the next few months. I think there is going to be a requirement for some of those regulators that are handling these cross-border complaints to act more quickly. And there are potential tensions, I think, at an EDPB board, uh, at an EDPB level, over some of those complaints, I think. So, Jonathan, uh, now I maybe could perhaps turn to some of your observations, uh, both as a practitioner, sort of commentator, thought leader on what the first year has meant and what it may portend for the future. I, th I think the first year has. Um, has, has certainly increased an awareness of GDPR. I think that some regulators have certainly felt underwater, and that sometimes led to slightly inconsistent decisions. Uh, on security breaches, for example, it's often taken clients a considerable time to get an answer from regulators as to whether it's something they're concerned about or not. I think some of the worries about uh, GDPR, uh, you know, that 72 hours wasn't long enough to make a decision, that subject access requests would be weaponized in the hands of some, uh, have regrettably uh, come true. Um, and, and I think we probably have led to better handling of data, better data security across the EU. You know, not could it have been a better piece of legislation? Undoubtedly, yes. But having said all of that, I think one of the other lasting things has been the fact that Europe has encouraged other countries to move. You know, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, um, Australia, altering their own legislation to more closely align with with uh, with GDPR, and and it's a trend that's even gone into South America, and even close to Texas. And even close to Texas. Well, Jonathan, this has been a fascinating exploration of some of the key topics, at least as identified by yourself in quarterly compliance. Uh, I look forward to uh, perhaps catching up on some cases or other developments in our next episode. My pleasure. Speak soon. 
Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special two-part series I put on with Jonathan Armstrong where we took a look at the first year of GDPR enforcement. In last episode, we looked at the numbers. Today, we looked at some of the substantive issues. If you have any questions about GDPR enforcement, data privacy, or data protection, I would seriously urge you to contact Jonathan. He can be reached at jonathan.armstrong at quarterycompliance.com. This is Tom Fox. Life with GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and C-Suite Radio. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.